Hello and welcome to episode 8 of What's the Alternative? As always, I'm your Tyler, you're the listener, and I'm your host, Tyler Herman. And in this podcast, I'm going to tell you a little bit of the news from the last week or so that I found particularly interesting in the electric vehicle and surrounding industries, so that you don't have to kind of slough through it all every week, because geez, there is a lot of news. As always, you can find links to the articles with brief descriptions in the show notes in case you want to read more about any of the things that I'm going to talk about today. So I'm going to jump right in with the first of the new segments, which is, did Tesla change their prices this week? And the answer this week is yes. I'm not going to bother describing them all because it's just constantly a mess. But uh, but yeah, they changed their prices this week. So we can check in next week and see if they change it again. So the first topic I want to talk about is we've got a tiny bit of news about batteries. So this company, Ample, uh, which I guess is a pun on AMP, is trying to make battery swap happen. So we've seen this with um, the there's a Chinese manufacturer, Neo. They've done like 500,000 battery swaps for their EVs. And the idea is basically that as opposed to charging the batteries, which is really difficult on the batteries, and doing that really quickly so that drivers don't have to wait around too long, we well, just swap the batteries out with a new fully charged battery that's been waiting, and then, you know, you can charge it much more slowly, kind of at your own pace, basically kind of acting like a buffer there so that things speed along for the, the owner. Now, Tesla looked at this uh, in the early days for their vehicles with an eye towards the semi where, you know, charging such a big battery would be very difficult to do quickly and have a lot of strain on the grid. But um, yeah, this company Ample's trying to make it happen. They're claiming a swap time of 10 minutes. Now, this is a company, and they're not an auto manufacturer. They just make the battery, and they're making a, a modular battery design, and they're basically hoping that automakers will take on their design. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing as, as we get automakers who are producing their own batteries, um, usually with you know contracts with LG Chem or, or any of these other battery companies. So you know, it'd be interesting to see if they really get much headway there. Uh, I think battery swaps, you know, is not a bad idea. It just seems really difficult to make happen. You, you need a ton of infrastructure for that. You need a very, very standardized design. It needs to be automated. So it's a whole kind of can of worms that they're they're hoping to get themselves into and hoping to kind of solve some of those technical issues. Now, they've got an investment from Royal Dutch Shell. So I think, we, you know, we see a lot of these oil companies uh, investing in these sorts of technologies, especially as ways to kind of like seem green when oil companies haven't had a good history of that. And they also claim that they're working with four major automakers. Not a huge amount of news about who those are, but, uh, you know, getting buy-in from them is kind of their, their most important step. The last bit of battery uh, stuff that I want to mention is, is a, another podcast that I really enjoy. It's called The Interchange Podcast. They are um, basically run by Green Tech Media, which is one of the news outlets that I, I, I read through quite a bit. And they did an episode just recently about battery technology. So they had basically an expert in the field just kind of talk about where batteries are going and where they've kind of come from. So you just want to plug that. It's about a 40-odd minute episode. So if you're kind of into that sort of deep dive, I think it's definitely worth a listen. And I did put a link in these show notes for you. So moving right along to electric vehicles, uh, Volkswagen has announced their next generation electric vehicle, which is for launch in 2026. Now I'll repeat that. It's for launch in 2026. Now, this doesn't mean that they're not producing new electric vehicles in the, in the interim, of course, but this is their, like, quote-unquote, next generation, which is, is a term that's thrown around so much as to be basically useless. The name for this project is Project Trinity, because, of course, they have a name like that, because you have to, right? Um, they have a heavy focus on automation with this car, which, again, is, is constantly tied to these new EVs. And... This is just a direct quote. It will set new standards in range and charging. 
So they're trying to do that, whatever that means. Um, I don't give too much weight to these announcements, but it's always worth kind of pointing out what uh, what these companies are saying that they're focusing on, which of course, like, of course you're looking at range and charging. Those are like the two things that people care about for EVs, that and price. So anyway, moving right along from that kind of nothing burger, uh, Toyota has announced a modular fuel cell design for use by other companies. So this is a hydrogen fuel cell. And now this is kind of important to note that this doesn't include hydrogen storage. So this is purely the power generation part of a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle. But it's, it's modular in a sense that, um, you know, hope, hopefully other automakers can kind of take this and, and stack them as they need and configure them as they need for whatever vehicles they want to do. So um, it's, it's cool to see these automakers use their like institutional knowledge and kind of what they've gained over the years and sell that to other automakers. I think that can, that can be a big boon for the industry. Though I do remain very skeptical of of hydrogen fuel cells uh, as a competing technology to electric vehicles, at least for individual owners uh, like like you or and I. Uh, for heavy duty, it, it makes more sense, but the hydrogen infrastructure is very lacking right now and incredibly expensive. Now it's worth noting if you're reading through the article, the fuel cells are relatively low power. Um, you know they don't produce a, a gigantic amount of power, but you know with the hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, you often make up for a lot of the power generation for like acceleration with lithium-ion batteries. Just those batteries happen to be smaller, so kind of operating like a hybrid vehicle does with you know the gasoline in this situation is the fuel cell and the battery is well the the battery in a hybrid, if that kind of makes sense. But either way. It's an interesting announcement, and it'll be really interesting to see if that actually goes anywhere, um, and if any, any other automakers or companies kind of take them up on that. So moving right along, I've got a couple of policy things to talk about. So um, we've got two EV fee things going on. So the first is there's a bill in the works in Florida that is looking at instituting EV fees and using those funds to build more electric vehicle charging infrastructure. So this fee would be... Um, it would be a yearly fee, like we see in a lot of states. And the interesting thing here is that they're actually basing the fee on vehicle weight, because vehicle weight is the you know most important metric when it comes to uh, road wear. And I think that's a, you know that's a pretty good approach. Uh, it's based around a ten thousand pound um, kind of bound. So below that, uh, it's going to cost somebody like a Tesla owner uh, one hundred thirty-five dollars a year, and then in twenty twenty-five that ramps up to one hundred fifty dollars a year. So I did some comparisons to look at gas tax and kind of how that actually compares. And so I'll put the math in the show notes, you know, it's simple enough math. But if you do the math on an EV traveling, to, uh, you know, 12,400 miles per year, which is around the, the average in, in the U.S., that'll cost about 1.1 cents per mile for an EV owner. But if you're looking at gas, it's really interesting. Just the state tax, Florida has incredibly high gas tax at 42.3 cents per gallon. And with a 28 mile per gallon vehicle, which is again kind of national average stuff, that's about one and a half cents per mile. So it's actually more expensive for gas owners than it is for electric vehicle owners. So that's really interesting. And then if you include the federal gas tax, which is not clear with this fee whether some of that fee is going to go to federal taxes. Um, so that that's a little bit unclear. But if you include the federal gas tax and in, in their per mile cost, it's actually two point two cents per mile, which is literally twice of what it is for an EV owner. So that's a really interesting thing. I think that's one of the first of these uh, these proposed fees that it comes out significantly cheaper for an electric vehicle owner. So yeah, I thought that was a really really interesting one on this. And, and there was some opposition to this bill, so it hasn't passed yet. 
But a lot of the opposition is pointing out the unfairness of charging by vehicle and not by usage. So, you know, what if what if an owner doesn't drive X number of miles per year and they only drive 500 miles or whatever, and they're just using it for pottering around the town? Um, that whole fairness question is just a huge, huge, huge can of worms. Uh, so I, I won't dig into that at the moment. Moving right along, we also had a similar um, sort of announcement from Minnesota. They are considering a fuel tax for electric vehicles. So this would actually tax based on the kilowatt hour, which is the primary unit of energy used for electric vehicle charging. So the cost would come out at about 5.1 cents per kilowatt hour. Now, that number is not very meaningful on its own. So doing some rough math about, you know, we're using the efficiency of electric vehicles, it comes out to about 1.7 cents per mile. So comparing that to gas tax, if you're looking at just Minnesota's state tax, it comes out using the same math as for Florida's um, tax situation, it comes out to about one cent per mile, which is, you know, uh, roughly half of the EV tax. But then if you factor in the federal tax as well, because again, it's not very clear with a lot of these fees whether there will be a state-federal split on them. But if you do factor in the federal federal gas tax, it comes out to 1.6 cents per mile. So that's 1.7 for EVs and 1.6 for gas. So it's actually really quite close to each other. So, you know, I'm not that, I'm not that upset about this one. This is pretty interesting. Um, as, I, as I wrote in my notes, you know, this is really not as bad as it sounds on paper. Uh, <laughs> electricity is really cheap in Louisiana, so 5 cents per kilowatt hour is actually about what what I pay for electricity. So taxing at 100% rate seems painful, right? But if you look at it kind of a per mile basis, which is a bit more fair, it's actually not that bad. So um, a couple points that I wanted to bring up here is that it's really largely ignored when, when these things are being discussed, that uh, the waning gas tax, you know, gas tax revenue is getting less and less over the years. It's really an issue with just inflation. You know, gas tax in, in most states really hasn't changed much over the last two or three decades. And to speak from Louisiana's perspective, we've had a really difficult time, I say we, but um, it's been very, very difficult for anybody to pass any gas taxes, any gas tax increases, I should say. Uh, it's been floated basically every single legislation, legislative session, and it just never goes anywhere. Um, it's actually, we're in leg legislative session right now, and it's actually being discussed, and it still remains to be seen whether that'll actually pass. It's really not an issue with EVs taking over that's taking away this gas tax. It's Right now, it's purely just an inflation issue. And yeah, I think that's just a point that's, that's really kind of interesting to keep in mind when these discussions are happening, especially because a lot of the articles or a lot of the politicians will say that EVs are taking over and that's reducing the gas tax. Really, it's kind of, it's kind of a different issue than that. And then, it's kind of speaking to the can of worms I mentioned a minute ago, um, you know, this is a, a regressive tax, so it taxes based on, on using it more. Um, and, and that means that it decentivizes the use of EVs to some degree. Uh, how effective it is, I think, is a big question um, at decentivizing it. But really, we need to be incentivizing EVs, which is one of the big issues with, with any of these EV fees, is that we want people to use them more. We don't want them to use them less. Um, and that, that's important, not just from a you know climate change thing, but there's really a social cost to tailpipe emissions. And uh, you know those are often called externality costs. And there's a you know, a ton of good literature out there on how much it, it literally costs and, you know, hospital bills and how much it costs the economy and people's deaths, which is a, a dark number to look at. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of real literal costs 
to tailpipe emissions. And, you know, so maybe we shouldn't be taxing these things. I, I don't really know. I don't have a solution there. But again, it's, it's a huge can of worms that's worth being really, you know, considerate of. So moving along to the last uh, story of the day, um, the USPS decision, the Postal Service decision that I mentioned uh, last week, where they're only going with 10% of uh, electrification with Oshkosh, is actually, uh, it's called some issues. So Oshkosh is, is under investigation. Um, so that is the defense contractor that won the, the new mail truck contract. Um, they're under investigation due to some fishy after-hours stock purchasing. Um, and in kind of tied with this, some legislation has been introduced to provide $6 billion to, to electrify the USPS, kind of in a, a one-two punch here. So regarding the fishy after-hours stock purchasing, uh, right before the announcement was made that they won the contract, $54.2 million of Oshkosh shares were purchased just ahead of the announcement. Now, that is like, it's really close to the total... Um, daily movement of their stocks. So, I mean, it's like 100% extra um, investment in Oshkosh or, or movement in their in their stock prices um, or in their shares. So it, it's a pretty big deal. Um, a lot of members of the Congressional Oversight Committee has asked the SEC, the Security Exchange Commission, to get involved in this and to launch a proper investigation and, and figure out if there's anything shady going on. I mean, it, it sure looks shady. And then again, it mentioned that they are they are a defense contractor, so this sort of thing does kind of seem uh, par for the course, if I may say that. Um, so I guess we'll see how that goes, right? And then moving along to talking about the bill that was or the legislation that was introduced to provide six billion dollars to electrify them, uh, USPS has expressed willingness to electrify if they're given money to do so. Uh, I think I mentioned that last episode. Um, and it is, this is a quote from USPS, so I'm just going to read out, which is, We welcome and are interested in any support from Congress that advances the goal of a postal service fleet with zero vehicle emissions and the necessary infrastructure required to operate it. With the right level of support, the majority of the postal service's fleet can be electric by the end of the decade. Now, that is in pretty stark contrast to going only 10%. Um... But, you know, with this funding out there, that might, that might kind of get there. The funding legislation would require 75% of their new fleet to be electric. So still not 100%, but 75 makes a little bit more sense, keeping some gas vehicles for, um, for you know, contingency situations and for longer routes isn't the worst thing. Um, and then, of course, at this, uh, workhorses stock stonked again. It, uh, they they kind of hit, a, hit a, bit of a, a bit of a peak after this this whole thing kind of shook out. Now, I don't actually know if USPS could include workhorse stuff in, in their contract and amend the contract in that way. Uh, I don't know nearly enough about the legality of any of that sort of stuff. But um, their stock went up, so I guess we'll see kind of how that goes along. Now, maybe if Oshkosh is found to uh, do some, some shady dealing, maybe that could make them uh, make the contract null and void, and then they go with workhorse. Who really knows what's going to happen there? And then just a little bit more details about the bill in particular. Uh, the bill also, in addition to requiring 75% of the new fleet to be electric and uh, providing the $6 billion, it has a couple steps in it. So it would require no less than 50% of the medium heavy-duty vehicle purchases to be electric or zero emission through 2029, and all new USPS vehicles to be zero emission after January 2040. So that's allowing for kind of a natural phase-out of the gas vehicles kind of as they reach end of life. So that's the last news story I have for you. Um, 
I've decided that it would be interesting to do a kind of a, a fact of the week or like answer listening listener questions uh, as they come up. So this week, I want to talk a little bit about diesel particulate filters and why heavy duty diesel vehicles are, um, well, they cheat on emissions a lot. And a lot of school boards are going with propane vehicles. And really what it comes down to is to reach um, attainment and reach the, the sort of emission standards that they have to by EPA regulation, heavy-duty vehicles have this diesel particulate filters on them, which are, are fine filters that um, kind of take all the soot out of the, the exhaust. And the interesting thing is that these, these clog up over time, as you kind of might expect, but they're reusable. So they have a process called regeneration, where basically the vehicle heats up a bunch, so it gets uh, the exhaust much hotter than normal, and that just burns away that soot in a way that doesn't produce the emissions that we really care about. So that regeneration process is, is all good and well, but it doesn't happen under normal load. So whenever vehicles are operating normally, they'd have to actually operate around 70 miles per hour for a sustained period of like 15 minutes to produce the energies required to burn off this soot from the particulate filters and regenerate them. Now, if the, regener- if the filters get too clogged up, that'll actually just stop the vehicle and you'd have to get it towed. So it's very expensive for fleets if this doesn't happen. So, you know, the process, if you're not going over 70 miles an hour, is actually putting it into a regen cycle, which again, can take 15 minutes, 30 minutes to do, which just takes a lot of time. And it's a lot of, you know, employee hours that are being quote unquote wasted on this filter. And a lot of drivers just forget to do it. And that grounds the vehicle for a little bit. And it's a really big problem. So we see this a lot with school boards going with propane vehicles that do not need this particulate filter. Uh, and that's really the single biggest thing that they're they're moving away from diesel as a result of is that regeneration process is just a bear. The driver training's difficult. Uh, some drivers just don't do it. And then you have grounded buses that, that can't move around. And whenever it's a school bus and you have school children on it, you can't have them on the side of the road. That's just like prime directive number one for school boards is keep those those children safe and moving, right? So that's one of the biggest drivers away from diesel. Uh, it's the diesel particulate filters. So I thought that's you know it's kind of an interesting thing whenever we're talking whenever you hear about diesel particulate filters or hear about these diesel fleets kind of moving away. You'll hear that as as mentioned as one of the big reasons is those filters. So that's all I have for you today. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. As always, you can give me feedback. You can reach out to me on Twitter. I am at Archduke Tyler. And yeah, if you have any questions or things that you think would be interesting for me to cover, please feel free to you know let me know. And I'll try to talk about it, do it some justice in this podcast. Uh, as always, you can find links to the articles in the show notes with short descriptions. And yeah, hope you enjoyed. And I will catch you next week whenever you inevitably listen again, because let's be honest, well, what's the alternative? <laughs>